From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Survivors of sexual abuse are figuring out their next steps after the state Supreme Court struck down part of a law meant to help them. Survivors should have a right to hold their abusers accountable, and I don't think they should have been limited on when they were to bring a claim when they were children. Then, she was on track to be a professional violinist until debilitating performance anxiety put a wrench in her dreams. It was walking this wire of really black and white failure and success that I felt were sort of mutually exclusive. Like, I would almost get this unstoppable urge right, to practice or to be like, I need to do more, and I need to almost like to punish myself in some ways. And later, love is in the air at the Renaissance Festival in Locksburg. Every day, Colorado Public Radio works to deliver you meaningful news and music, using the power of the human voice in all its forms, so you can build a deeper connection to your community. To do that, CPR relies on your support. Join CPR's membership community for the first time as a monthly donor, and your Evergreen membership will be the gift that keeps on giving, supporting the resource that keeps you listening. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Survivors of sexual abuse are figuring out their next steps. That's after the state Supreme Court struck down part of a 2021 law meant to help them. Justices found it conflicted with a provision in Colorado's Constitution that prohibits legislation from applying retroactively. Colorado Matters producer Tom Hess as our story. Kenneth Power was abused as a teenager in the Boy Scouts. Now he's in his 50s, married, father of a three-year-old son, and working on his golf game in Broomfield. But the scars remain. I've been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety disorder, horrible and social environments, even after five years of therapy. So although you kind of understand, it doesn't set you free from the trauma of the past, the struggle will never go away. Power is among the Coloradans who could have sued an organization like the Boy Scouts, thanks to a small window the Colorado legislature opened up in 2021. The hope was the short span for civil suits, in cases where the statute of limitations had passed, wouldn't run afoul of the state constitution. Survivors should have a right to hold their abusers accountable and I don't think they should have been limited on when they were to bring a claim when they were children. Attorney Michael Nimmo helped lawmakers craft the legislation. And essentially, under the old law, they had to have brought their claim by age 20. The statistical data out there shows that childhood sexual abuse survivors don't tell anyone on average until the age of 52. They keep it inside because sometimes they don't even know that it's wrong when they're eight years old and a teacher touches them. Kenneth Power was 48 when he started going to therapy, having seen the long effects of the abuse. I did have two marriages, and because of all of the baggage that I carried, both of those marriages went south within a year. And I know it was because of all of the brokenness and all of the trauma. You know, I've been married for about five years now. But it was only until after the therapy, I took the edge off of a lot of that shame and, you know, things that I was carrying that I was able to enter into a relationship 
and have a healthy relationship. Katie Wallace is another survivor. She says it was leaders in her church who let her down. She was also exploring civil litigation before the court's decision. More than the lawsuit, um, it was, it's really about the church seeing me and seeing the damage that they did to my family. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of damage. The Colorado Supreme Court acknowledged the thorny nature of the issue in its unanimous decision. Justice Monica Marquez wrote that the court understands the desire to right the wrongs of the past, but doing so must square with the state constitution. Attorney Michael Nimmo said he had some difficult conversations with clients after the ruling, particularly because other states haven't had this hang-up. So if you're a survivor who was raped as a child in California, you can bring a claim. Arkansas, you can bring a claim. Louisiana, you can bring a claim. Georgia, you can bring a claim. Colorado, nope, can't bring a claim. So it's very disappointing, um, not just for me, but for you know all the survivors out there who I've spoken to that are my clients who I was the first person they ever told, and they're now in their 50s or 60s because they couldn't bring it to tell their spouse that they were abused as a child. And now I have to call them and tell them, sorry, under Colorado law, you have no claim. Among the original sponsors of Senate Bill 88 was State Representative Matt Soper of Delta. He says while they knew a court challenge was likely, he's disappointed the law didn't meet muster. But there's another option. Change the Constitution. So lawmakers are looking to put an amendment on the ballot. That would require two-thirds approval of the legislature and 55% of the popular vote. I believe there's momentum. The question is, is there two-thirds momentum in both chambers. And I think that's going to be quite hard because I think a lot of members will look at the Supreme Court decision being a 7-0 decision and they're going to say, I don't know that I really want to risk the political capital at this point. Soper does think voters could be convinced. And survivor Katie Wallace says she'd speak in favor of such a measure. Honestly, I'm going to do everything that I can in my power to try and get this some traction. I had Representative Jesse Danielson reach out to me just recently, and she asked me, invited me to come out to testify for the legislation. I plan on spreading my story and to get this enough traction to get the votes that it needs. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. When we come back, anxiety derailed her dreams, but she's now on the journey back from Broken. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at CPR.org careers. Growing up, Natalie Hodges practiced the violin every moment she could. She was good and the practice made her excellent. She started down the path of becoming a professional violinist until debilitating performance anxiety put a wrench in her dreams. But it helped her discover the root of her problems and put her on the road to recovery. 
Back from Broken is a show about how we are all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. Let's join host Vic Bella. Natalie Hodges doesn't remember a time when she wasn't playing the violin. After all, she started when she was like four years old. I know it was a long time ago and you were just a little kid, but do you remember how you felt about starting this instrument? Yeah, I I was so indifferent. Like, I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) But I do remember that I loved performing Mm -hmm. from, like, basically from when I was very, very little. And I guess the first time that I ever performed, I don't remember this, it was like a little recital for my teacher, like my teacher studio when I was like four years old, five years old. Um, And I was playing a song called Spinach Green and Goopy. Makes me feel so droopy. It has two notes. And did uh, uh, did Beethoven write that? I I think it's one of his lesser known compositions. Yes. So I was playing that, and I had to be dragged off stage because I just wouldn't stop repeating the the little two note refrain. So performance was something that, from at least when I was little, I I apparently loved. What did you love about it? Was it kind of like the adoration? Yeah. I'm sure I loved that um, <laughs> part of it. I think also I kind of liked this feeling that I just had to kind of get into the zone and do something. I remember actually liking the adrenaline rush of yeah, that. And yeah. I liked the fact that like there's people there who are watching and they expect something and then kind of rising to meet that. And then, of course, that's what became very difficult. Natalie poured everything she had into making her dream of becoming a professional violinist come true. But as she got better and better, her performance anxiety got worse and worse. So Natalie was forced to choose between her dreams and her mental health. And she would learn that there were even deeper demons she needed to face. Natalie Hodges grew up in Denver in a close-knit family. She's the oldest of four kids, and all of them played the violin. They bonded over their love of classical music, which was really fostered by their mom. She loves classical music and she loved the violin. She played a bit when she was younger as well. And so, but for financial reasons, or a lot of d- different reasons, she wasn't able to mm-hmm. um, pursue it. And a lot of times people are like, oh, well, did she just transfer that dream onto you? And, and that's actually not the case. Once I said, like, I really want to do this, she really organized a ton of her life around being able to to give me the opportunities that I wanted. Wow, it sounds like she she just like loved you and supported you, right? Yeah, I'm sure was, you have a lot of good memories around that. I do. There was so much love in it and it was a way in which I knew I was really loved to have my dream be supported in that way. When I was in high school and at this point was really, really serious about the violin, was entering a lot of competitions, was practicing five hours a day at minimum. I had to make that time by staying up really late at night, otherwise I uh, there just wouldn't be enough time in the day. And what I would do is I would actually ask my mom like if I needed help, if I could wake her up and if she would sit there and listen to me or and just sit there so I wouldn't be alone. And that sounds incredibly selfish and it <laughs> was. But that was honestly one of the most, I think, extraordinary measures of of love that I've been shown in my life and that I would also hope to be able to to show to my child or show to her again in some way. Hmm.
Your dad, on the other hand. Yeah. Um, that was harder. I think he, um, he, I think, liked the notion in some ways that we were good, my siblings and I were good at music, but um, he didn't like basically how much of our family life and our family resources, quite frankly, like went into that. Mm -hmm. And it really became actually just a a point of really terrible tension in my parents' marriage. Um, And I think because of that, uh, there was just a tremendous amount of guilt and anxiety that I felt. Um, So that was hard. There was also a, a big cultural difference between him and my mom and I think the music maybe represented or that played out in the music as yeah, well. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so uh, my mother is Korean. She was born in Seoul, and uh, she immigrated when she was about four, coming out of um, the immense trauma of mm-hmm. the Japanese occupation of Korea um, and then of the Korean War. There's a tremendous amount of strife that, that her yeah, family fled. Yeah. She would always say this, like the the ultimate privilege would be to give her children what she wasn't able to have. Like the reason she wasn't able to um, continue playing the violin was her father. He was terminally ill and he passed when she was 13. So from then on, she was working lots of jobs. And then it was really important for her to get a job that would allow her to continue to do that. So she eventually became a lawyer. So I think for her, the idea that she could give us something that wasn't just about us having to scrabble for our survival that was so important to her. And that's what, um, for her, I think that felt like mobility. Yeah. And and I guess culturally it's, you know, and your dad's white, right? Mm -hmm. And and so he didn't have those experiences, right? And in terms of the gratitude around being able to do things in this country. Yes. I think from my dad's And it's not just his. It's like his whole family's perspective. I mean, they had ancestors who came on the Mayflower and they lived in Boston. They kind of have Mm -hmm. this. I think for them, there's always been the sense that we've already made it. Like we're already here. And a lot of that is a function of just who we are innately. Mm. And so I think he didn't see the need to pour so much into the effort of of the music. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Natalie was starting to realize she was really good at playing violin. When she was just 10, she won a competition where the prize was to play a solo with a full orchestra. At that point, Natalie was hooked, and she thought that if she just put the work in, she could be really good, so she went all in. But pursuing a professional career in classical music is hard. It's super competitive, and she started feeling the pressure. Those all-night practice sessions weren't as fun anymore. They started to feel heavier. Yeah, it it was really hard. It was very uh, internally imposed. You know, I never had someone saying to me, like, practice this much or else, right? But at the same time, there is really a structure, at least I, I feel, to the classical music world that kind of it is like this impenetrable fortress in some ways. And I think historically it has also wanted to project that image of itself too. Like mm-hmm. we're kind of just at this level where people play perfectly. And the the difference now between one player who's really good and another player who's really good is, is more, at least in my mind, just in terms of interpretation. And so 
that does put this pressure to be perfect just to be able to join that upper echelon. And you have to be in that upper echelon if you want to have a job in music. I had a teacher tell me once, like, you kind of need to play like a soloist to get orchestra level jobs. Well, for people who don't understand the, the process, like, yeah, sure. how challenging is that, right? Like, how much yeah. work do you have to put in to even get to that point of having that conversation? Yeah, it's a hard question to answer because there's this very like um, nebulous balance of work and talent. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, right, people are born with certain levels of ability. I mean, it's a physical thing. It's like inescapably physical to play an instrument. And some people have longer arms or larger hands that are going to make things inherently easier for them. But what's really, I mean promising and at least seems democratic at first maybe about classical music is that so much of it just comes from the sheer amount of repetitive work that you put in um so there's always this sense that like oh, if I just worked like a little bit harder if I practiced eight hours a day instead of five hours a day am I going to be able to get to the level of people who are born more talented um, right. or for whom it's just easier inherently right. than um than it is for me it was almost like an addiction yes it was like it was walking this wire of really black and white failure and success that I felt were sort of mutually exclusive. Like if I didn't play it as well as I knew I could, even if there's not a big mistake, that's a failure. And the absoluteness of that and the black and whiteness of it created this like I would almost get this unstoppable urge right, to practice or to be like, I need to do more and I need to um, almost like to punish myself in some ways. But there was also a tremendous relief in then, you know, staying up till 3 a.m. just practicing, even if it was not in the most efficient way, because I was like, I like I have I have to do this. Like, I can't almost I can't stop myself from doing this. Like, I also deserve to be like really tired and, you know, have my, you know, finger be bleeding, like my callus coming off because I made that mistake. And it's, I made that mistake because I didn't practice enough. So it was this like addictive cycle where. I would get like this hit from burrowing into it even more. There was like a tremendous amount of relief, right? Even in the midst of that, those really difficult practice sessions, because I was like, I'm doing the most that I can do. I know that I'm doing the most I can do. I have certainty about it. So I need to keep doing it, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you touched on a little bit of the of the cultural factors when you talked yeah. about your parents. How much did your own cultural identity factor into the pressure you were dealing with? Ah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple ways in which it did. I think the first thing is that in Korean culture, and I think in just a lot of East Asian cultures, there's really a great premium placed on like the best way I can describe it is grunt work, like the like banging your head against a wall. Mm -hmm until it collapses. And um, there's a lot of faith placed in that. Like, basically, I felt like there's not really a length that you shouldn't go to just in terms of being willing to put in that kind of work and sacrifice. The other is that there's a very interesting phenomenon that I'm sure you know of that uh, Asians are very successful in Western classical music. I think that's because of the fact that classical music is something that responds so much to hard work. Mm. Um, and uh, that's something that Asians are familiar with. Um, but there's also, at least in my own experience, there was this sense that 
as my family and other Koreans um, like have tried to assimilate into American culture, there was this sense that um, the best way to do that and the way to be accepted is to wholly embrace the culture that you're trying to enter. So if you look at classical music, right, it's kind of it's the pinnacle or some people would say it's the pinnacle of traditional European Western art. And I do think trying to get really good at that is this way of saying, like, I've like I've arrived in your country and in your world. I can um, like be really good at this and you'll accept me. And then this is also something that can belong to me, too. A lot of the racism that Asian musicians encounter in the classical music world comes from people saying like, oh, well, they kind of play like robots, like their technique mm. is so good. But like Yo-Yo Ma actually uh, has said in in interviews that the question that he used to get asked often, like when he'd play Bach in Germany is, how can an Oriental like you really understand Bach? And so there's a sense that the more you're trying to join that world, like the more you kind of reveal yourself as this imposter, because if you can never really understand Bach, but you spend your whole life, you know, trying to achieve this technical proficiency at it, it kind of almost reveals you as this try hard, right? It shows more that you don't belong. And so I think that's a very alienating experience that a yeah. lot of Asian musicians have in the classical music world. And um, that also shows the cultural pressure because you just can't win. At you, that I point. was just going to say that yeah. it's a lose lose situation. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> on the other hand, it's like, oh, that person is Asian. They must be really good at this instrument. Yeah, for sure. This is going to be an excellent concert, right? So you had to match that. Exactly. Despite all this pressure, Natalie still loved playing the violin. And as she progressed in her teenage years, she was becoming a stronger player. She even stopped by the Colorado Public Radio Performance Studio to record a piece with her sister. All of this success meant the stakes were getting higher. And when Natalie was a junior in high school, she noticed a distinct shift. Her performances felt different. I started to just be on stage and feel absolutely flooded with nerves in a way that I had never experienced. And the way that that manifested itself was I actually felt like time had stopped in the performance. And I mean, I think that would be a terrible feeling to have in any experience, but because, I mean, music isn't really anything but you know, structured temporal flow, like as expressed through patterns of rhythm and harmony and form to feel time stop it it felt like I couldn't get beyond the certain moment in the piece where I was and so I had that experience I think maybe yeah first in junior as a junior in high school and then it kept repeating itself and basically repeated itself all the way up through college and then I would start to get really afraid to perform because I was afraid to feel that and it was interesting to feel like it always manifested as this a feeling of being out of the flow of time. Like that was very also, I think, existential and scary. One performance really stands out. Natalie was performing a notoriously hard piece, La Campanella by Paganini. This version you're hearing right now is performed by a different violinist, but just listen to how challenging this piece is. So I was getting to this run at the end of the piece 
I could get it sometimes in practice, but I just kind of sort of fixated on it. And there was a voice in my head that said, you're going to mess up this run. Especially because the performance up to that point had been going quite well, like almost surprisingly well. And so when I get to that run, it was almost like I had to sacrifice it on the altar of everything else having <laughs> gone somewhat according to plan. It was a certainty that it was going to go wrong, and I almost felt like I was creating that for myself. That was an incredibly powerful feeling. And it ended with me, like, theatrically, like, losing grip of my bow. <laughs> It was like I whiffed it, not on purpose, but I knew I was going to do it, mm. if that makes sense. It's like a form <laughs> of sabotage, self-sabotage. Very much so, yeah. And I, that sort of line that you walk in situations of self-sabotage, of being in control, not in control, which is so terrifying. Being not in control almost feels like you are at the same time, or you're in control and so you mess all of it up, you destroy it. I still remember actually the crawling shame that was just all over and like not knowing how to locate myself in that moment. Like why was I so out of control, but mm. also I knew it was gonna happen. It was a pivotal moment mm, yeah. um, in how I thought of myself as a violinist and, when, and it's the first time that I had really had a performance suffer in a way that was maybe noticeable to other people, not yeah. just to me, from that anxiety. So it was the first time that I was like, mm, maybe this is a problem. And it was a problem, one that would take years for Natalie to face. How she did it when we rejoined Vic Vela and Back From Broken on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News and KRCC. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir, I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As A River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Natalie Hodges was an up-and-coming virtuoso violinist in Denver, but while she loved to perform, by high school, she started to experience increasing anxiety. Let's rejoin her journey back from Broken with CPR's Vic Vela. Natalie Hodges kept working to push through her performance anxiety, and she had plenty of success. She went on to study music at Harvard. But that moment of time stopping during her performance just continued to eat away at her. And she wanted to know why it kept happening. So as a sophomore in a biology class, she did a lot of research on how brains work. And there were studies about this stuff, and learning about the neurological science behind it was a huge relief to Natalie. Getting that bit of understanding helped, but it didn't mean she stopped chasing her dreams. She was still practicing long hours late into the night. And during Natalie's junior year, she geared up for a competition hosted by the orchestra at Harvard. I wanted to compete. I prepared the Brahms Concerto, which is one of my favorite violin concertos ever. It's, it's so a good beautiful. One. Yeah.
I prepared, I think, harder for that than anything I had in my life. And I also prepared smarter. Like I was, at this point, I was getting better at practicing. I was trying to figure out a way to, you know, to be more efficient. So I'm not just blindly, you know, banging my head against the wall, repeating the same runs over and over. So I felt like I had practiced in a very creative way and I felt pretty confident um, going in. And I went in and did my audition and it was actually one of the best performances that I've ever given. Okay. I just, I felt, not only in terms of I think how it, how it came out, but just how I felt when I was playing. I felt really free, more creative and spontaneous. And I knew, right, when that happens to you, you just, you know, like you're making something yep. in time and it feels good. I gave everything that I had. And uh, I didn't win. I came in second. I, yeah, I was the runner-up. I just remember after I they announced the result, um, and I was like, it was okay. Like I was very happy for the person who won. It was a beautiful day in the fall, and I sat there and I just bawled. I just cried. Um, and if I felt like something was kind of like leaving my body, it was all of the tension of that performance. Wow. But it was also, yeah, it was a really, it was a really strange moment. It was almost like when you're kind of consciously like falling out of love, like it feels like something is, is, go, is being released. You're just letting go. You had all these struggles and you were yeah. in your head for so long. And, and finally you just said, wow, I really enjoy how I'm playing right now. And who gives a damn if I win? All these feelings are coming out. Exactly. But there was also um, this sense, too, that, like, I played my best and it wasn't enough. And no matter what, it's not going to be enough mm. in terms of a professional career at the, at the level that I want to pursue one. And that was the first time that I really knew that. I just remember having to make this choice and I'd also majored in English and had really fallen in love with literature and writing during my college experience. And I remember actually sitting in the common room of the house where I lived and just thinking like, it's not my voice. And I, it was such a, a weird phrase to sort of have pop into my head and have come to me. But I actually called my mom and I told her, I said, it's not, violin is not my voice. Mm. And I didn't really know why I was playing anymore, aside from to, to meet these certain standards or to, to soothe the desperation that I felt when I couldn't meet them. Like, that was my reason to practice at that point. So it, it didn't really feel like I was saying things with my music. What a revelation. Yeah, you it was know. terrible. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, but freeing also. Mm. And how'd your mom feel about the decision? She was so supportive. She just said, that's okay. She said, you're not going to... She's like, you've worked so hard, there's nothing to regret. Mm. And that was a piece of reassurance that I was really grateful for. Because I, I think was so... I was predisposed to kind of think, oh, well, like, is this from not trying hard enough? Or I could always... That would always be something that I could question. And she reassured me that it was something that I shouldn't question. So Natalie let go of her dream of becoming a professional violinist. But her problems didn't go away. She still experienced anxiety. It just wasn't on a stage anymore. In order for Natalie to truly recover, she needed to get to the bottom of where that anxiety came from. 
During her senior year, she built on the research around performance anxiety that she had done earlier in her college career. And learning that scientists had observed other people experiencing this too helped Natalie feel like she wasn't alone. Eventually, she wrote a thesis project that combined science and memoir. It was so good, she actually got a book deal after graduating from Harvard in 2019. But a monkey wrench was thrown into Natalie's plans during the pandemic lockdown. I came home and I was working on turning my thesis manuscript into the book, revising it um, so that I could get it published. Because I didn't have violin anymore, because I I was at this point kind of like, I'm not going to apply to graduate school, that period of my life in which violin is this really central column is done. Like the column has come down. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety, strife, and the purpose that violin had held, all of that didn't have anywhere to go anymore. There was no container for it. There wasn't something that I could just go and do for five hours a day and feel like I was making progress or working on something. Um, I didn't have that anymore. And then I think the confluence of that with COVID, the isolation of yeah. that um, was was very difficult. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. And you struggled, right? I did. Yeah. I was lucky to be at my mom's house. I was living with her and then my siblings were all home during that time. So that was a nice element of it that I think really saved me. But basically the uh, the struggle that I ended up having was this surge of intrusive thoughts about anything that you can possibly imagine. Like I really struggled with anxiety about my health, which of course makes sense since it's COVID. Like I thought, you know, I would wake up and think that I had some terminal illness. I would wake up the next day and think I had another terminal illness. I had so many terminal illnesses during that time. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Um, you know, and I have anxiety about other things too. Um, and I would, all these thoughts that it was just so easy to um, latch on to and make real. And I remember just like lying in bed one night and feeling like I literally had, it wasn't a hallucination, but it was this almost visualization of myself. I felt like my head had cracked open and it felt like the the night was pouring in. Wow. To like into my skull. What a description. Yeah, it was, it was this really like awesome moment in just in the like really um, actually terrifying sense of that word and the, the largest sense of that word. It's been a lot of work to come to, to terms with the fact that that is there. But when I think back on it, it's almost like that, that sense of, of chaos like and chaos the chaos in me and probably the chaos that's in all of us and the chaos that's out there not actually really being separable from one another and how terrifying that is it was like this root thing that was maybe at the heart of the performance anxiety the need for control right and I'm sure violent prevented me from ever feeling that mm. up until that moment yeah. because it was something that promised control and I had to come to terms with the fact that none of us can do that um, and I think that was what unleashed all of that grief and rage and anxiety that had been just bottled up for a really long you time. You put it so perfectly. I mean, that's just a lot to have in your head, you know? It was, I think that's what the, maybe the image of it cracking open. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and because and, you struggled to even get out of bed at that time, right? Yeah. I, I, I did get to a point where I was like, gosh, like I, I sort of didn't really know whether I... Um, 
wanted to be around, to mm. be experiencing that level of terror every day about stupid things and feeling like the shame of like, why can't I just get over this stuff? Like, why do I have to think I'm having a heart attack when I'm not? Like, the frustration with myself, I think in the same way that I, in that performance when I dropped my bow, felt like, why did, why did I have to do that? Why wow. did I need to, why do I need to sabotage my life in this way? Um, and so that, of course, I mean, as anyone who's struggled with anything like this knows, the compounding shame of going through that doesn't make it better. Without the violin to anchor herself to, Natalie needed a new outlet. All those hours that used to go into practicing started to get filled with other things. Writing became a way for her to feel grounded again, so she focused on her manuscript. She also started focusing on her mental health. I found this um, really wonderful therapist who uh, basically pulled me out of that night. That's great, yeah. because people need to hear that, that there are answers to these mm -hmm. things, right? There is help for you if you need it. Yes, there is. And I remember I I called her. She was actually the first therapist I found because I Googled therapist health anxiety Colorado, and she, her <laughs> name came up. And I called her, and I just remember being very embarrassed by myself as I was going on this long tangent of, oh, my God, I deal with all of these, like, blah, 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 blah. These are my thoughts in this 10-minute consultation. And she was very quiet. And then after I said all of that and I was like pausing to breathe, she said, I can help you. Just those words, those four words, to be told that by another person, like a stranger, like that sentence made one of the biggest differences in my life. To know I wasn't past repair and that just somebody would even care enough to say that. Oh, that's beautiful. Just a little, just a little sentence. I can help you. Yeah. Just four words. Mm -hmm. So powerful. It was so powerful. They changed my life. She changed my life. Natalie started regular sessions with her new therapist to help her work through the anxiety she was feeling and process all these pent-up emotions. She was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And the more she learned about OCD, the more she was learning about herself and how her negative thought patterns were holding her back. I would describe it as a stuckness that results from a thought that you don't want to have, which is called an intrusive thought. Um, and everyone has those, but most people are able to brush them off pretty easily, be like, oh, that was weird that I just thought that. But with OCD, people, a thought pops into their mind like, oh, um, like a very common example is, did I not turn off the stove yep. when I left the house? And instead of just saying, oh, I, I probably did, I remember that, as someone with OCD would be like, I, I think I remember it, but what if the house is going to burn down yep, and yep. I will be responsible for killing my pet or my neighbors? And you're now, just kind of torturing yourself with the thought. Exactly. Now it's not just maybe I didn't turn off the stove. It's me. I'm going to be a murderer because I didn't yeah. turn off the stove. And then the third element that I would say, and if I'm not a clinical expert in this by any means, but is that you have to do what's called a compulsion or a behavior to soothe the thought and make sure that the worst case scenario isn't going to happen. And then your brain is like, did you lock the door, right? Yeah. And it's all of that whole process all yeah, over again. It just takes off. Yeah. It could also be like what I struggled with was um, like you have a sensation in your body and we all get those all the time. But, you know, for someone with health-oriented OCD, it will be, oh, that's a symptom. 
and then you Google your symptom and Dr. Google tells you it's cancer or this could be a symptom of cancer. Then you Google that disease and then you start matching what you read to things that you feel in your body. So it's it's, it's a just rabbit like hole. That. It is. It is this it's actually this feeling of like burrowing down and down and down into yourself. You get to this hell hole that feels like it's basically at the bottom of you. So how did you get better? Yeah. <laughs> it's still I mean it's still it's ongoing. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I guess like it's weird to say like what I like about this diagnosis, but what's really interesting to me about it is that having to be okay with uncertainty is so fundamental to the human condition, right? That's something that everybody like with that diagnosis or not has to grapple with at some point in their lives and so it's easy to just say oh it'll be fine or to focus you know for me really hard on violin so I didn't have to deal with that and to give myself this semblance of control um but losing violin and then having to deal with this demon I'm grateful for it in the end because I had to grapple with that really fundamental uncertainty that, you know, goes back to our mortality and our place in the universe and all of those things. That sounds hokey, but I had to confront it in a way that I never had been challenged to before, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. It's made me want to live better, to be a better person, a kinder person, to love harder. So I'm, I'm actually grateful for that in the end, even though some days it is still hard to get out of bed. Natalie's book is called Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time. It appeared on the National Book Award long list and was spotlighted as one of NPR's favorite books of 2022. As for Natalie's relationship with the violin these days, she does still play a little, but it's just for fun, for things like parties and weddings. I feel so happy to be connected by, you know, just the fact that I can play to people on special days of their lives or on really hard days of their lives and to get to come in and out of their experiences like that and to be connected to them for those moments. That's what music gives me now. And it's like the most precious thing to me. Big Bella with Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcast and at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every summer, Coloradans anticipate roasting and buttering ears of Olathe sweet corn, grown exclusively in Montrose County. But it's more than a vegetable. It's the crop that saved Olathe. Once upon a time, Olathe's economy ran on sugar beets and barley. When demand for these dropped in the 1970s, the town's finances suffered. Then along came a new sweet corn variety with higher than normal sugar content and unusually tender yellow and white kernels. In just a decade, the farmer who first planted it raked in millions of dollars. And soon, other fields were planted in sweet corn. The delicate ears must be harvested by hand. Tens of millions every summer, quickly packed in ice slush to lock in the sweetness, and then sent to grocery stores and farm stands. It's the sweet treat on the cob that restored Olathe's economy and the focus of a festival every summer to celebrate Olathe Sweet Corn. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Love is in the air at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. Nestled in the hills of Locksburg, north of Colorado Springs, the fair recently hosted its annual Romeo and Juliet weekend. KRCC's Jessica Duran has this audio postcard that takes us to the road stage where married couples in velvet dresses and silk tunics renew their vows. Marriage is what brings us together today. Steve Adams, and I play Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, We're doing a renewal of vows. So uh, this is a little ceremony for any couple who's interested, and I'll lead them through some affirmations and some vows to each other. They'll hold hands. They'll, they'll do a symbolic hand fasting with a ribbon that we give to each couple. And uh, each couple gets a flower. And at the end of the ceremony, I pronounce them continued in their bonds together. <laughs> My real name is Pinky Step. And in the festival, I am Elizabeth Howard, the Duchess of Norfolk, married to the third Duke of Norfolk. Um, We've been married for 52 years, that we have renewed our vows a lot. Because we've done it 16 years, some years both weekends, and some years only one weekend. Think about it. As we grow up, we all think on occasion about marriage, about finding that, that one person who will love us and put up with us, and whom we can love in return. My name is Marcel Castro. Barbara Castro. <laughs> well, believe it or not, we wanted to do it last year. Unfortunately, we, we didn't plan for traffic, so we were a little late. But I don't know. There's just something special about this place. It's, it's a, I guess, not as traditional, for sure. But uh, I don't know. Just There's something magical about being here with someone that you care about and love, and that's that's why we chose to be here. So Just renewing our love for that we have for each other. It's really important to always make sure the person that you're with knows how much you love them. David Jones. Sandy Jones. We just had our 35th wedding anniversary not too long ago, and it just seems like the thing to do. And we have been to our (laughs) local Renaissance Festival every year, so to come to this one is just fantastic. We thought it was a perfect place. It's it's a very joyous time. Everybody's here to have fun, and, and this makes them feel good. I really like bringing the happiness to people. They want to be happy, and I just guide them through it. You know, marriage is absolutely nothing like I imagined it would be. And I wouldn't trade the reality of it for the world. Now please turn and face your partner. Take thy beloved's hands, palm up, so that thou may see the gift that they are to thee. These be the hands of thy best friend, holding yours as they pledge their love and commitment to thee all the days of their life. Means everything. The words in the vow renewal, you may have noticed, made us both tear up. And after 52 years, that's not easy to do. But they are very meaningful. And it's absolutely true. We feel that way towards each other. And this is our fun place, so doing it here is marvelous. I do now, by the power vested in me, 
pronounced that you do remain and continue pledged to one another. You may kiss. Congratulations, one and all. What, we're married now? What? That piece was produced by KRCC's Jessica Duran. You can find photos from the vow renewal at krcc.org. Two rare agave plants have bloomed on the CU Boulder campus for the first time in 30 years. It's drawn spectators, including CPR's Jenna McMurtry. A large stem extends upwards about 20 feet out of two spiky agave plants. The pair have now become a main attraction on campus. Gosh, it's incredible, and to see it in person, the pictures simply don't do it justice. It's, it's amazing. That's Olivia Murphy-Welkinish. She traveled all the way from the Gunnison Valley, where she works for the Crested Butte Wildflower Festival. I've always I've just loved nature and been amazed by it and its wisdom, and I think it's extra incredible when something takes as long to bloom as it does, like the monument flower native to Gunnison. I mean, it blooms every 50 years, and so to see something of a similar genre is pretty cool. John Clark runs the campus greenhouse. To see them bloom, it's something that it only happens once for that plant in its lifetime. In Colorado, it's not that frequent. You would have to go to the southwest to see these bloom on a regular basis. For a plant, being out of your natural element often means you can't repollinate on your own. That effectively means Clark and the other greenhouse staff are stand-in plant pollinators, which entails a few trips up a ladder, sometimes as high up as 30 feet, to seed a new offshoot, known as agave pups and usher in the dying plant's offspring. While there's no way of knowing when any given plant will bloom, Clark said he first saw signs of a potential bloom in early May. We noticed that the uh, one on our, the south side of our building, on a Monday, it had what we call a, a thumb. It had uh, its inflorescence sticking up about a foot and a half out of the air, uh, above the plant. Boulder local Josh Yabon was bummed to miss last year's campus agave bloom. He said he's glad he caught it this time around and got to share the experience with his son. I don't always go searching for stuff, but I think having a, a four-year-old probably encourages me to do that a lot more. And 30 years, I may not be here the next time, but and he may not live here anymore. So, so who knows? You got to see it while you can. I'm Jenna McMurtry, CPR News. Here's a fun fact. Agave plants only bloom for a few weeks. See pictures of the rare event at CPR.org. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a novel and it is unforgettable. Go as a River is set in a real-life town that was gradually evacuated, then flooded to make way for a reservoir. The author is Shelley Reed of Gunnison. Well, I think it's a little piece of Colorado history that a lot of Coloradoans aren't even aware of. Blue Mesa Reservoir, as the largest reservoir in Colorado to so many people, is just this absolutely beautiful lake. But knowing the history and knowing there are actually three towns at the bottom of that beautiful lake really give it, uh, to me at least, so much more interest and historical depth than most people are aware of. Her displaced characters are peach farmers, wondering what their future will hold. Go as a River is also about the displacement of indigenous people. So pick up a copy and read with us. Then join Ryan Warner on September 13th in Grand Junction. We'll record an interview on stage with author Shelley Reed. 
Details and tickets are at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is CPR News and KRCC.